0: Um, I'm very very excited to preach And I know you're all very very excited to listen to me go on and on and on and on and on about romance. But before that, um, that was slightly sarcastic. Um, but, but before that, just a few things to, to let you know that we ought to be excited about. Um, that parenting course really is one. Uh, so we're going to fill this room, 10 tables in here, 100 parents, uh, watch a great, funny, inspirational, helpful video, then have good discussions afterwards, um, eat a good meal and go home. That's the plan for the parenting course. Eight weeks that will be, I think, one of the most wonderful and worthwhile investments you can make. Can I ask that all of you just become massive gossips about this for the next little while? Just talk to everyone you bump into. I want our whole neighborhood to feel invited to that parenting course. That's one thing to be excited about. Um, Another is just, can you wave your hand if you are part of the Toletando ministry? If you head down to Toletando and serve there, just stick it up high because I want to... Just honor you. There are plenty of others who are missing. And if you're from Toletanda, some of the kids that live there are here as well. They were down there again this last weekend doing more wonderful stuff, being blessed and being a blessing. And I'm just so excited and proud of our church when I hear about the good things that everyone goes and does when they spend time at that at that children's home uh, and so I just want to honor you and thank you and say you're doing a wonderful thing um, and then the other thing to say I mean you saw an amazing uh, band up here half of them were from our church half of them were from a church called Red Point who's doing its best to try and create a sort of skills sharing body of Christ type thing um, and sharing some of them use those out and encouraging other churches to do the, do the same which I just think is awesome I mean we really have a bit of that relationship with Repta, uh Church. And so it's really exciting. And so Abram and Graham, who are leading and drumming, uh, just want them to feel really loved by you. If you spot them, don't be all shy because they were on stage and you're not as cool as they are. and Don't do that. Just go and bomb them with love, and thank them for being here. Um, Good stuff is going on. More that I could continue to prattle about, but the one thing I want to tell you uh, is that you should know by now um, that we're starting a building campaign as a church, that we are raising money to buy some land. Uh, Amazing two potential properties in the middle of Hillcrest. Either of them would be incredible. Uh, We're trying to hear God on exactly which one, and we're just bashing down the doors to see which one he opens up. But as a church, if we can buy that land, we can then Invite some tenants to come and be part of the development we want to do. Get some other investors on board because we want to create this amazing mixed-use venue, which I can't do justice to now, but we're trusting that there will be an awesome landmark in our uh, little mini part of the city with tertiary education on there and some great Um, commercial stuff and a church auditorium and all these good things that we do here, we could just do so much better there. Um, And within the first week or so, we already have had about a million rand pledged by people sitting here, which is just overwhelming. Uh, And I know that a whole lot more of you are still busy journeying with God and trying to figure out what he's calling you to do. Just want to remind you again, all of us ought to be part of this. This is going to be something so exciting when we drive past it and start to see the building going up. The 1000 bucks you put in or the 100000 bucks that you put in or whatever in between I'm trusting that it will be a blessing to be involved in. Uh, And so if you'd like to ask me questions about that, if you want to tell me what a dreadful and terrible idea it is, or what a wonderful idea it is, all of that, I would love to hear from you. Uh, And there are these envelopes at the back if you're still wanting to go on this journey and be part of financially sowing into something um, that's going to grow the kingdom of God. So those are all the things that I wanted to indulge myself with talking about. Um, But now we're going to start with the book of Romans. Uh, We are so excited to spend the next four weeks studying this magnificent mountaintop in scripture. Romans is one of those unbelievably important books. Many Christians throughout history have memorized the whole book of Romans, um, which is impressive because it's long. Uh, And there are all sorts of reasons why Romans is so popular and so hugely important. Some of them are quite historical and interesting. In fact, Churches like the one you're sitting in right now probably wouldn't exist if it weren't for the Book of Romans and the impact it had on a young guy called Martin Luther, who we'll talk about more. Um, But what we started by doing is going over the first uh, three chapters of the Book of Romans in our Bible school that we ran last term. Uh, All of those talks are on our podcast apps. um, And so if you go into wherever you normally get your podcasts from, you'll be able to listen to the overview, chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. We're going to redo chapter three now in a slightly different way and then do four, five and six over the coming weeks. And each chapter stands alone as just something really awesome. So that's the plan. And then uh, next term, the dates will pop up behind me. uh, We will continue on finishing the book uh, at Bible school. Uh, And so this is going to be one of those things that just gets sort of embedded in who we are, uh, and that'll be very good. Okay, so before we even get into the book of Romans specifically, what's it all about? Well, Romans, like the whole Bible, uh, is about this idea called truth, That's really what it is. The whole book of the Bible, the whole Bible is, sorry, the whole Bible is a collection of books that tell, I suppose, two stories parallel. One is the relationship between God and his people, and so you get to watch how a good God relates to a fickle group of people, um, and you see all kinds of wonderful things about him. But the other thing that the Bible is about uh, is the relationship between people and the truth. And truth's a big idea. Truth, according to Jesus, sets you free. Because when you believe something that isn't true or something that once was true but has been watered down and corrupted in some way, you are less free than you otherwise would be. When you've believed a lie, when you've trusted that something is going to work out a certain way and it hasn't, when you've made certain assumptions about how you work or how the world works and those assumptions are wrong, then your ability to live successfully and freely in this world is compromised, isn't it? If you are convinced that all ginger people are out to kill you, then that will limit your freedom, even though it's not true. And some of my best friends are gingers, and they're fine. Um, But if you have this faulty belief knocking around inside your head, then it's going to limit your ability to move freely in this world and have meaningful relationships that are based on a sort of solid foundation of truth. If you believe things about yourself, that everyone who looks at you is busy judging you for fault X, and you've allowed that thing to become true in your mind and the fact that it's actually false makes no difference that lie if you've allowed it to take root is going to limit your freedom in this world you're going to rule yourself out of certain things and disqualify yourself from certain things and interpret things through this filter right you can grasp this idea our right? truth is hugely powerful for us sets us free even when it's inconvenient even when it's confronting even when it's frustrating Believing the truth is always better than believing some corrupted version of it. sure we can all agree with that. But that does sometimes mean that we have to accept there's some things that you believe right now, and just because you believe they're true doesn't mean they're true. Just because it's more comfortable to think that the world works a certain way or you are a certain way, or just because it's more comfortable to believe that in the short term If it's not true, it's still worth rooting that out. And the book of Romans is one of those amazing opportunities where we get to go to an objective source outside ourselves and humbly say, okay, what's the truth? Because I need to know. And some truths, frustratingly, some decisions, some assumptions, some beliefs only come out in the wash way later. Democracy versus capitalism. Which one will go better? Hard to tell up front. Both political ideologies claim to be able to set people up for thriving. And so our world went on this crazy, multi-generational social experiment to see which one would work better. And it wasn't clear upfront which one would be better. And it turns out that the countries that went with communism are now bankrupt and under the control of dreadful tyrannical rulers and the cost and human suffering and wasted potential is vast. But at the beginning, it was hard to know that democracy would usher in peace and co- communism would usher in evil sometimes these things take time to play out. How do you know that the way you're parenting your child right now is the right way? You'll only really tell when they're a teenager. And when they're a teenager, then all of the ways that all of us have been parenting will turn out to have been wrong. Um, But then hopefully after the teenage moment, uh, some good things will will come out of it. How do you know that your keto adapted banting diet is the right way to go? Well, it's going to take some time to figure it out. You're going to have to stick with this thing. Uh, And it might turn out later that your legs fall off and your hair goes funny colors, but you don't know yet. And so you have to stick with it this is why we have to come humbly to the book of Romans and go okay we believe that God has inspired this we believe that there is truth here and let's take the shortcut of exposing ourselves to truth and submitting ourselves to truth as opposed to for the sake of independence playing out our assumptions and seeing how they turn out one year one lifetime many lifetimes from now when we discover oh flip if only I had changed tack back then so that's why we, we come to it. Now the most f- the famous person to first come to the book of Romans and discover that there was a radical and confronting truth that needed to upset his whole world was a guy called Martin Luther. I suspect others had come to Romans and had that experience before, but he's someone whose experience we can document, someone who we can kind of relate to. He grew up in a world in the 15th century that was dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not about to knock the Roman Catholic Church. God has done wonderful good things through that church, continues to do so, and there are people who are in our church who started out getting to know God there. But at that moment in history, it wasn't in great shape. The Roman Catholic Church was a pretty ugly vehicle for controlling people. And the truth that was being taught, in inverted commas, the truth that had been corrupted and watered down, was that you are saved by faith in Jesus and by good works. That both are equal parts of the combination that get you right with God. That salvation, that right standing with God, was available through first believing in this Nazarene carpenter and recognizing that he was in fact God, but then also your belief in him had to be evidenced by a bunch of good works that you had to do, money that you had to give, penance that you had to pay. Uh, And if you did those things successfully enough, then you were right with God. And the standards were crazy high as well they should be, because God is a terrifyingly holy, absolutely perfect. And so people started out believing in this wonderful man called Jesus, and the incredible good news that he would offer. But then the church taught them that there's a bunch more T's and C's, you know, the bits that they speak very quickly at the end of the advert, that you can barely get your head around. There were some T's and C's uh, involved, and Faith in Jesus wasn't enough. You then had to show your faith by various good works. And here was the interesting sort of technical deal. Because the Bible was pretty hard to water down on the fact that Jesus paid for your sins, the church needed to come up with some other explanation of what was happening to you the bad things you did. How were you being punished for these things even if Jesus had already died on the cross? And so this place called purgatory was invented, to be frank. Um, And it's supposedly where your sins that you commit, even though they've been paid for by Jesus, and so they're not going to mean that you go to hell, that you're still going to end up paying for these things for a while, and it's going to be dreadful, and you're going to have all the nastiness kind of stripped off you by great suffering, uh, and you can avoid it by paying lots of money to the church. This was a smart business plan, if you think about it. Um, Dreadful, sorry, that's fairly dark humor. Uh, But not only could you avoid purgatory or lessen your own time in purgatory, but if you were generous enough or moved strongly enough by the terrifying preachers um, who described what your relatives were going through in purgatory right as we speak, you could, for a small fee, um... Relieve them of some of their suffering as well and purchase some indulgences. This sounds dreadful, right? This sounds absolutely evil and corrupt. And yet it tapped into something that is in every single human heart. It's how we're hardwired. We love a rule book. We love a score sheet. We love a way to keep track of how we're doing. We love an opportunity to boast in the fact that we're getting better. Even if you're too polite and middle class to boast out loud, to at least internally have somewhere to say, hey... played like you you did well this week we love to have some Framework, some metric to let us know when we're doing a good job and when we're doing better than person X, who's currently doing a bad job, and here's why they suck. Um, That is hardwired into how humans work. We love a rule book. We love a score sheet. And the Roman Catholic Church was simply providing what all of us are crying out for, some way to know I'm doing a great job or I'm doing a bad job, and I can make myself feel appropriately terrible when I do a bad job, and then I can reward myself for doing an appropriately good job. And um, all of this stuff was couched in theological terms using the awesome, terrible, Terrifying, absolutely true holiness of God as the motivator to get people dancing to the tune, right? Now, you've got a young guy, Martin Luther, who loves God and who really wants to serve God, who realizes what all humans know that deep down inside, you are not the center of the universe. Someone else is the center of the universe, and he's glorious, and he's worth giving your life to. And many of you may be struggling with that very idea. I can let you know how it ends. At some point, you are going to admit what your heart's been telling you all along. You are not the God of the universe. There is another one. He's glorious, and he's worth giving your life to. Martin Luther has that realization. He wants to glorify God. He wants to serve him. He decides to give his whole life to serving God, to become a monk, as part of one of the orders of the Roman Catholic Church. Studies the church doctrines, studies the scriptures, and starts to notice that the book of Romans seems to contradict everything that his church has told him. And this becomes inconvenient, right? I want to give my life to serving this church, but the Bible we say we represent seems to be contradicting what our church is saying. And he starts struggling through the fact that doing Christianity the way his church had told him to do it was causing him to hate God. Doing Christianity the way his church had told him to do it was causing him to hate God. And some of you may have had this experience where He is so perfect and holy, and the standards are so high, but the more I trust Him and the more I try, the worse I behave. It's supposed to get easier to follow the rules and easier to be a a good person. And yet it gets harder and harder, and I try to sort out all this evil stuff inside myself and yet more of it just seems to pop up and even when I do do a good job then I feel quite proud of the fact that I've done a good job and that's a sin and then even when I look at other people who seem to be getting blessed by God unfairly and I'm working harder than them and behaving better than they are but they seem to be getting benefits then I complain to God about that and then I recognize well I've just set myself up as a judge over God how dare I so I failed again and in every way that we try to measure up and keep the rules we seem to break them even more apostle Paul came to the realization, even my good works are like filthy rags. I just can't be good enough. I can't be holy enough. And this God is supposedly crushing these people with these dreadfully high standards. And then the promise of purgatory and all the money we're supposed to give and all the Hail Marys we're supposed to say. And it was just a dreadful cycle that he found himself in. And the book of Romans was absolutely contradicting it. Because among many things, in chapter 3, he came across this line. Verse 21, but now... God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. And this isn't some newfangled idea. This was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. And lines like that out of chapter 3 and many throughout the book of Romans forced Martin Luther to recognize we've got this wrong somehow the truth has been corrupted. We have allowed it to be watered down. What the church is preaching has deviated from the truth by however many degrees and now where we've ended up is miles away from what's actually true and it's not setting us free, it's causing us to be crushed. And he began that epic fight for the rest of his life. I know that last week I said everyone ought to watch um, Fiddler on the Roof. And that will still be good for you. You should still do that if you've got the hours and hours required. But really, everyone should watch the movie Luther, um, which theologically and artistically will just be really great for you. And this is the story of how this young guy recognizes that the truth of Scripture is the truth of Scripture. Even if it costs him his life, he has to live his life on this. Because living his life based on a lie was causing a crushing and trapping of his soul. It's cool stuff. The trouble is, both routes we go require faith. Whether you choose to relate to God based on your works, or whether you choose to relate to God based on the work of Jesus, both require faith. It's not quite so simple as saying one is a route of faith and one is not. If you're going to choose to believe that God looks at your good works, notices them, will reward them, um, will trust your intentions even if your actions don't add up, you're still choosing faith in God. What we've seen though consistently, and I don't think any of you here is going to be the exception, is that when you choose to relate to God based on your own works, it's never good enough. You are not perfect and you aren't going to be. And so you're forced to have to choose the other option. But if you are up for it and want to really try to defeat every idol inside your life to ensure that you desire God above all else at all times, treat everyone exactly how you're supposed to, let us know how it goes. But at some point, you will come to the realization that Paul came to that Martin Luther came to Verse 10 to 12, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. The positive psychology, self-help, high self-esteem movement of today would hate a line like that. How on earth can we be saying we're all useless? But friends, the joy of embracing the truth that Jesus Christ died for you and that there is a new way to relate to God starts with the abject despair of admitting, I am useless. And it is one of the most glorious moments when a human being recognizes you are useless. You are not going to be useful to God in your own strength. You are not going to be acceptable to God in your own strength. A relationship with the perfect, powerful, holy creator of the universe is simply off limits to you. You are the wrong species. You are the wrong makeup. You cannot get right with God. There is no way. And you're supposed to because he created you out of love to be in relationship with him. He created you to glorify him with every breath in your body. He created you to live in perfect worship and being deeply satisfied by him. And yet you are not allowed to be in his presence. And you will never get back there on your own strength. And the crushing despair of recognizing that the thing you were created for is off limits to you that the good life you were designed to live that was supposed to glorify God and satisfy you is impossible for you, that you are worthy of being thrown on the scrap heap, that anything that gets designed for a certain purpose and cannot fulfill that purpose ought to be recycled at best, right? That that is your state, that every human being has to at some point come to the crushing realization, yeah, we're broken. We are. We're broken beyond repair, Satisfaction is off limits to us. Glorifying God is off limits to us. Relationship with your glorious father and designer is off limits to you. You won't get there. Every single one is unrighteous. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. And if you are in the boat like so many of us, of bringing your hardwired need for a rule book and a score sheet to your spiritual life, you are in such desperate trouble. All of us are. If I've brought my strength, my goodness, my ability, my well-behaved track record to my spiritual life, I am on a collision course with this scripture. You are on a collision course with this scripture at some point. And Terrifyingly, this might take as long as the communist experiment took, right? This might take your whole life to finally realize all the good things I've tried to do weren't good enough. All the bad things i tried to avoid snuck up on me anyway. All the ways I thought I was superior to so-and-so just judged me. If I want to judge this person for being poor in these ways and failing in these ways, well, the, you know, what's the, the sort of school field thing that the one finger's pointing one way and the three others are pointing back at you? It's absolutely true when it comes to this. None of us are good. None of us are righteous. This is dreadful news. But, but, there is this other way. So let's go back to that good news we started with in verse 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Verse 23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet, God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Yet God, but God. That's why the strapline for this series is the faith to quit. I'm very proud of that little line. Um, I think that is this radical idea that we're trying to get our heads around. And it's so uncomfortable. It should lead to all kinds of weird questions. But then why should you ever behave well? How can I ever trust another Christian if there's no reason for them to behave well? What does this mean? Is there anything I can do to please God and become more intimate with Him? Does my life even matter? Does what I do even matter? Those are good questions to be asking. And there are some great answers to them. But before we get to the answers to those questions, it's right that you end up in a position going, well, if it's nothing to do with how I behave, nothing to do with my performance, if all I'm supposed to do is quit and trust that he did enough, how on earth is life supposed to work? Good, right question. The paradigm should be totally broken and shifted. I relate to God purely on someone else's good behavior. I get to be in his presence purely on someone else's right and valid past that gets them into the presence of God. It's got nothing to do with me and my track record. That all of us have been called to have the faith at some point to just quit and rely on what Jesus did to allow us to freely become right with God. I'm going to change translations. I just want you to marinate in this. So we'll keep going back over this, Romans 23 through to Romans 27. Um, But let's keep going. For all have sinned, so this is the ESV, and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Legal terminology here saying your sins have been paid for by someone else. They no longer belong to you. For you to try and pick them up again and take responsibility for them again when someone else has paid for them, when propitiation has already been made, would be illegal for you to do. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, your failings, your brokenness, your mess-ups are no longer yours. And you are robbing God when you try to take them back and take responsibility for them and beat yourself up about them and apologize for them and disqualify yourself because of them. They've been paid for already, bought already. This should be so wonderful and so uncomfortable to hear, right? Because you're a human being and every human being wants a rule book and wants a score sheet and those things are just being ripped up by Romans. Let's keep going in another translation here. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God is being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. Just strange side note here. Paul is clocking something weird that God has done. See, this whole deal, that the only way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ, not your works, is so radically true, so unmessaboutable aboutable that God actually had to go and violate the rules of time because of this. There's this fascinating moment. Jesus is busy arguing with the Pharisees uh, about Abraham, and we're going to go on to hear about Abraham in chapter 4 of Romans. Um, and he says how Abraham looked ahead to my day and saw it and was glad. And the Pharisees rightly are like, but you're not even 50 years old and now you claim to have known Abraham whose grave is here and who lived hundreds of years ago. The fact that the only way to be right with God is through Jesus is so true, so inviolable, that God had to weirdly, and we, it's a mystery, I don't know how he did this, bend and break the rules of time because even those that lived before Jesus still had only one way to be right with God. Even the most glorious heroes of faith in the Old Testament had only one way to be made right with God. Not the awesome stuff that Samson did, not the wonderful temples that Solomon built, not the fantastic obedience to the law, none of that stuff. The only way to be made right with God, even before Jesus came and did his stuff physically on earth, was to have put your faith in the mercy of God as represented by God the Son. And God had to do some weird thing which we won't understand that allowed even someone like Abraham to look ahead to Jesus' day. I don't want to confuse you with the science fiction here, but I want us to see if it was so true that the only way to be made right with God is through Jesus Christ, that God even had to break the rules of time and delay judgment and find a way for those who lived before Jesus to still see the gospel. How much more is it only true now that we know it, that we've got no excuse, that when you pick up your own works and dust them off and try to boast about them or feel guilty and ashamed of them, when you bring your track record to God, your rule book, your score sheet, and think that's going to make you right with God. We are on a collision course with Romans 3.20. All have sinned. No one is righteous. We're useless. It's just not going to be good enough. There is another way. It's the only way. Let's continue. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No. No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith, not by obeying the law. Can we boast then? No. This is tricky. Because this means you can't even boast to yourself. You can't even hatch a plan for how to get right with God. And so many of you are at church because you have this glorious desire to be right with God. You want to get your spiritual life sorted out. I've, you know, got my physical life sorted out. I've got my financial life sorted out. I've got my relational life sorted out. I've you know, done these other things, checked the box, and now I need to sort my God life out. And so I'm going to what am I supposed to do? Okay, am I going to sign up for some stuff? Is there like a 101, 201, 301 course I can go on? Are there some things I can do? Okay, give some money, get to the a van. Okay, check, did that. Turn up at Life Group, check, did that. And you're going through the motions and wondering why it's not working. Because that whole paradigm is broken. You can't even boast to yourself. It's so frustrating because this whole thing relies on a Love relationship with God. Trusting Him and entering into His presence. Believing that you've been made right with Jesus and allowing Him to give you the faith to quit. The beginning of sorting out your spiritual life is to quit sorting out your spiritual life. The beginning of trying to become made right with God is to quit trying to be made right with God. The beginning of dealing with that sin issue and habit that keeps on rearing its head is to quit trying to deal with that sin issue and habit and walk boldly into the presence of God if you've believed in Jesus Christ, as someone who absolutely belongs there, someone who absolutely has the right to be there, and start having a conversation with your dad about why he loves you, what he sees in you, how he's accepted you, who he's made you to be, what your new identity is, and of course, out of that, some things will change. And of course, for the rest of your life, there are ways that you can go about becoming more intimate with God, and what you do still matters on earth, and there are ways that you can affect your intimacy with him, but you can never affect your relationship with him you can never affect your qualifications to be in his presence you can never make yourself more right with God and the sooner we quit the sooner we can actually start making some progress in this area all of this stuff is legal and logical I want to leave you with one final idea that kind of makes this whole thing give you goosebumps right people sometimes claim that they would die for someone and um, most of us sort of believe it when moms say it, right? When moms say that they would die for their kid, you're like, yeah, you probably would. Um, the rest of those claims are a little bit loose and a little bit shallow. It's hard to say it would really happen until it actually is needed, and it's very really needed that anyone needs to die for someone else. Can you imagine someone dying for you? Can you imagine that actually happening, that someone decides that your life is worth more than their life, and so they give themselves to the alien that's currently holding your ship captive um, or whatever scenario you need to dream up to come up with this dreadful choice that has to be made. Just imagine, though, how you'd feel about that person that decided that they would rather die so that you could live. The thanks you'd want to give them, perhaps the last conversation you had with them was a fight, and so now you're, it's a dreadful thing note to leave it on, and you wish you could have a conversation with them again, express your gratitude, express your love, Ask them what the heck was going on in their head. Complain about the fact that they were probably more worth saving than you anyway. Whatever it is that you would want to still talk to them about. That idea that someone would die for you is amazing and terrifying. That you would actually be worth it. That now the rest of your life you should live somehow to make their sacrifice worthwhile. It would be a weird situation to be in. Not a totally comfortable one. But you would be filled with a desire to chat with, express your gratitude to understand what motivated the person that died for you. One of the lesser spoken about but amazing benefits of the Christian life is that you get to have a relationship with someone who already died for you. Because he performed the amazing feat of rising from the dead, I get to have a relationship with God the Son, Jesus Christ, who decided it was worth dying for me. That I get to give him my thanks, that I get to ask him why on earth he thought it was worth doing, that I get to live in relationship with him from here on out, that someone looked at your life and decided it was worth dying for, and not just anyone, but that holy, terrifyingly impossible to approach God loved you enough that he decided to die on your behalf, and then he invites you to get to know him and find out what on earth was going on in his head, and how he hopes your life could go on now that he's saved it. And right now, you and I have the opportunity to quit holding up our track record and the things we've done wrong and the things we've done right that just distances us from Jesus because we're trying to say, well, your sacrifice wasn't enough. I don't need it. It didn't work for me. Somehow my failing is enough that it stops me being in the presence of God. Now, I know you bought my sin, but I'll take it back and take responsibility for it. I'm a mess up. I'm useless. No, no, no. Right now, you have an opportunity to quit all of that stuff and start a relationship with this amazing Sacrificing God. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And there are a bunch of different ways that we need to respond to this unbelievably good news, this paradigm-shaking, mind-bending good news. And I want you to just try to listen to your heart and try and sense what God might be doing inside you already. Because all of us are legalists. Let's not make a mistake here. All of us prefer a rule book and a score sheet. Even if that score sheet inflicts pain, it still makes things make sense. It allows us to boast, it allows us to scheme, it allows us to compare ourselves and compete. All of us deviate towards the rule book. And all of us need to be confronted again, offended again, confused again. Again by this invitation to quit.